Magic.me is the world's greatest school ever for magic, meditation, and mysticism. All of which, by the way, are the skills you need when it seems like the world's not offering you any options and it just keeps getting tougher every day. Like the walls are just kind of closing in. Well, magic is the go-to source for personal power. And that's what you and I and all of us need right now. Whether that's the power to confront the economic crisis, the medical crisis, the never-ending political crises affecting us, magic is your go-to source for reclaiming power, taking control of your life, and becoming the person you were always meant to become. You can find it at magic.me, www.magicmagic.me. Start with our brand new course, Introduction to Magic. It is phenomenal. I have completely redesigned, refactored, and streamlined magic for the 2020s and beyond in a new system that I call Binary Magic. You can find out all about it at the Introduction to Magic course at the top of magic.me. If you just want a taste, if you just want a sample, Go to start.magic.me, start.magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, where we have a brand new free guided meditation for you, where you can get a very compelling and uh, very effective taste of magic and meditation and what they can offer you. Check it out, (laughs) start.magic.me. Okay, my guest today is Rick Spence. He is an American historian and professor of history at the University of Idaho. He specializes in modern Russian military espionage and occult history. He's produced biographies of Sidney Riley and Aleister Crowley, including the book Secret Agent 666 about Aleister Crowley's long-running relationship with British intelligence and intelligence work on behalf of the UK government, which I actually worked on as part of the editorial team. Rick has been interviewed for various documentaries on the History Channel and is a consultant for the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Rick has published several books and is the author of numerous articles in Revolutionary Russia, Intelligence and National Security, Journal for the Study of Anti-Semitism, American Communist History, The Historian, and other journals. This was a really, really good conversation. So, like I mentioned, I did work on that book about, about I, I worked briefly on, on Rick's book about Crowley for Feral House when I was working as an editor there. But instead of just talking about Crowley, which is perhaps a too obvious topic, we talked about the overlaps in general between the occult and intelligence worlds, which is a very interesting topic that doesn't get mentioned a whole lot that definitely people shy away from at times. But there's a really intense history there that includes not just Crowley, obviously, who was a British intelligence agent, but also, for instance, John Dee, the original 007, who practically created the British intelligence services in the Elizabethan period. It even includes people like Blavatsky, Gurdjieff, and potentially many others. So we are going to the dark side of the moon on this episode and talking about very secretive people who are involved either in secret societies or secret intelligence work and the 
communications between those worlds on the clandestine side of things. Not from a conspiratorial angle, not from a David Icke angle, but from the angle of the actual history there. And of course, Rick is an actual historian. So we had a great, great conversation. You're really going to dig this. Please welcome Rick Spence. Lovely to meet you. Yes. So, and I, I really did enjoy your book. So I wanted to do a podcast on, we can definitely talk about Crowley, but in, in some of the email correspondence, I think it would be really, really awesome just to have a conversation about the overlap between intelligence work and the occult. And obviously there's a lot to touch on. We could talk about Crowley. We could also talk about D Blavatsky, Gurdjieff, even Parsons. And if you're up to have that conversation, I, I'd love to get into it. If yeah, you sure. Wanna... Let's, let's see where it goes. Yep. So why don't so so why don't we do the overview? What are your thoughts? You've probably thought about this subject a lot. I mean, what are your overall thoughts on this this overlap that people are aware of, but they don't necessarily think about it as much as they do the the obvious surface level elements of the occult and all of that. Well, I guess the basic question is that why does there seem to be this uh, recurring connection between occultism or figures connected to occultism and espionage or more broadly intelligence work? And it's one of those things that, you know, it's not a one-off. It just comes up again and again and again. And like so many things, once you become aware of it, it begins to, you, you, you find even more instances of it. The basic reason for the connection, I'd say, is that both of those realms, occult and intelligence, deal with, with secrecy, or they, or they deal with the, the, the acquisition and manipulation of information. So in, in intelligence work, everything is all about trying to keep your information secret and trying to figure out the other guys. That's, that's the whole aim in this case. And that involves a lot of, well, it means in, in order to protect the truth, the reality of something, you have to learn how to lie very well. You know, the whole idea is the truth is attended with a bodyguard of lies. So one of the things that, uh, an example of that is the use of, of disinformation. That, that's a term that I think in many ways it's kind of closely connected in many ways to the more common term you hear nowadays of fake news. You know, we got all this information coming at us. There's all of this stuff. I mean, you go to Drudge Report or whatever, and you're just like bombarded right. with, with tales well, of well, apocalyptic doom. I mean, every day the, the, it's like something the, new the, out there that's going to kill you. Totally. Them. The irony of that, though, is if I actually used to work for the company disinformation, but my um, the irony there is disinformation is originally a CIA term, right, mm -hmm. for what the CIA does, which is the opposite of what the narrative of fake news is, is supposed to be. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, a retired KGB guy I ran across claimed that, of course, the KGB came up with the term desinformatia, but mm. who knows? It's just there. The... The difference, you know, maybe to a key difference between disinformation and misinformation is that misinformation is simply wrong. It's incorrect. 
uh, and that can be deliberate or accidental. But disinformation is never accidental. The simplest way maybe to put it is that disinformation is designed to lead the hounds away from the fox. That is, it's, and that means that in many cases that disinformation is basically true. I mean, much of what is contained within disinformation is accurate, but it is structured in such a way or contains a kind of poison pill. It contains just maybe one tiny bit, one mis deliberately misleading statement, which will render the other truth around it inoperative. So it's very tricky stuff. And it's one of those reasons why you can't necessarily just kind of throw disinformation out the window because a lot of it probably is accurate in some way. And that's one of the things that touches upon, you know, if, if you look into what we'll call the realm of occultism, the other thing that you encounter in a slightly different way is a lot of disinformation. Now, usually it's called hoaxes and charlatans. They abound. I mean, there's virtually no area, uh, anything from you know, spiritualism to magic, anything in the occult you look at, you're always going to run into fakers and charlatans. And it's usually very difficult to figure out when someone, you know, at what point are they faking? You know, it's it's um, the statements have been said about so many. In fact, I think somebody said it about Crowley. Is that yeah? You know, he's probably mostly a fake, but not entirely a fake. Well, that's definitely part of their charm. Often, yes, it, it is. That's that's the fun um, of it. Figuring figuring the puzzle out sometimes. Well, one of the things I think it, it allows people to do is to simultaneously dismiss them. Ah, oh, yeah, they're a fake. See, I caught them in this, but then also to to kind of hang on to this idea that at least part of what they're saying may be true, or that there's some kind of reality in that. So it's, um, yeah, to me, the, the occultism is constantly awash and it's in its own kind of disinformation. And, yeah, you know, it's like mediums, spirit mediums. I mean, you can just go through and probably, this will probably offend some spirit mediums out there, but most of it, it would be, I think, safe to say, is bunk. It's someone faking. It's a trick. And the reason for that, I think, as I've, I've tried to explain it, is that tricks are just so much easier than the real thing. So if you want to do, you know, if you want to do an actual ritual summoning, you know, if you're going to call up the, you know, the spirit of Mar, you know, Bartzabel or something, you're going to mess with some sort of, you know, that requires not only a lot of work and preparation, it's also unpredictable. You never know what results you're going to get. Maybe it will work. Maybe it won't work. Maybe they'll cooperate because you've got some other will involved in it. You know, and that's just like trying to have a committee meeting. <laughs> I'm sure most people can identify with the fact that the more people you add to a meeting, the less is accomplished. Yes. So, or somebody once put it that the aggregate IQ of a committee decreases by 10% for every person who was added until you reach the point of complete idiocy. And having spent years in academia, I will swear that is true. <laughs> yes. Um, so 
on the other hand, if you learn a trick, you know, it's like a stage magician. If you learn how to do the trick and you master, if you through practice, they will work virtually every time. And it's no longer a particular effort. So as far as the audience is concerned, you can achieve the same visible result with the trick as you can through the real thing. And again, the audience, uh, it, it's, it's all the same to them. So I think that's the other thing you tend to find in you know, another sort of overlap. Something else you can find uh, in the realm of, of intelligence, of course, is the double agent. Okay, the, the kind of very useful tool in intelligence work, but also a kind of persistent danger, which is there. Because the double agent is the person who pretends to be working for one side where they're actually working for the other, or they're actually working for both sides at the same time. And this is this is one of the one of the questions if you're an agent handler that you always have. Um, let's put it this way, just as you can say that there's a lot of you know hoaxers and uh, charlatanism and chicanery in the occult in the intelligence realm you're often dealing with people who are less than honest for instance someone comes to you with an offer of service they come in they're an employee of another government and they come to you and they say i'll work for you you know i want to work for you in this case and they may have access to very useful information but the other thing you now know about them is that they're not reliable. I mean, their other employers, mm -hmm. their present employers, believe they were reliable and put them into a position of trust, which they're now offering to betray to you. So one of the things that you can never forget, you know, just like you're dealing with a demon, is that this mm -hmm. person is dishonest. They are not trustworthy. So the one thing that you have to accept about them to begin with is that the only thing reliable about them that you can depend upon is that they're unreliable, but you can work with that. You simply have to be constantly aware that you can only trust them to a certain extent. It's um, There's an acronym which is used in intelligence, MICE, M-I-C-E, and it, it basically is used to explain the Four basic methods of recruiting someone, how you turn someone into an asset. And uh, one is simply, you know, money. Okay. I said they'll work for money. Uh, the other is ideology. Uh, that was something, for instance, especially in the 19, from the 1920s through the 1940s, that the Soviets employed very, very successfully. The, the lure of communist ideology led many people to, in, in pursuit of that, in their loyalty to communism, they would betray whatever sort of government that they were working for. Uh, the C is, is compromise or coercion. This is where you basically force a person to work for you, basically by you have something over them. But the last one is the most interesting, and that's ego. That's right. that people will do it because they can. Um, and I, I think you can see an example of that. There's a, a, a famous 20th century Soviet spy that infiltrated British intelligence was Kim Philby. 
And, you know, Philby is one of these guys who was, you know, pretty much was moving up. You know, he had this sort of, he could have had a very comfortable life in the British establishment. He could have, in some parallel universe, maybe have worked his way up to being the head of MI6. But he became a traitor, one, through ideology, because he became a communist. But also, I, th I think the thing that really sort of reveals the fundamental, the, the real reason why Philby did it, was his statement that you never look twice at the offer of enlistment in an elite force. No who. And, and that's what he was referring to in this case. You know, when the, when the Soviets came to him and asked him to work for them, his ego like that, the mere fact that they would, they would bring him in. And it's one of these things that you can find. I mean, you can find it uh, not just in intelligence and elsewhere, is that, that often you're, you know, people who are working in a field where you have your enemy, you know, where you're, you're working for MI6, the CIA, you know, you're, you're dealing with, you know, in the old days, you're dealing with the KGB. Well, the KGB is your enemies. But the one thing that you often learn, there's someone learns in contact with an enemy in constantly dealing with them is a kind of respect for them. I mean, after all, these are the only other people who can understand what it is that you're doing. You're all in the same sort of field. I mean, you, you both exist in a world which, you know, the profane, the, the public doesn't really understand. And so in some cases, the mere fact that this organization, which you respect for its professionalism and ability, would want to have you be a part of it is a tremendous appeal to the ego. And then again, you might consider the degree to which ego plays a role in the pursuit of occult knowledge. After all, you're, you're, you're after information, which will, beyond whatever practical use it will have, you know, the, the, the great goal in this is the, the advancement of the self, yes? The, the attainment of knowledge in a position, ultimately, you know, it's like the great work of alchemy. What's the thing you're really after? Turning lead into gold? No, it's turning yourself into a higher state of being. Transcendence over mere humanity. So ego is always the element that you can find in, in both of these, these spheres as well. Interesting. I would suspect that there may, maybe, would you say that there's perhaps with some people that are recruited, there's, there's a bit of an element of a jilted lover to it in the sense that they feel that their own, I wouldn't necessarily say, say betrayed, but that their own side has failed to recognize their greatness. Yes, unappreciated. And it seems like that, okay. yeah, it seems like that would be a personality trait that's easy to spot. Well, see, good, see how this connects with ego. The two traits here is yes. one, you've got somebody who usually thinks they're the smartest person in the room. Right. And and very often they may be, except when they're not, but they never notice that. And the other is that they don't feel appreciated. They've got some sort of a chip on their shoulder. You know, something happened. They didn't get the promotion. They didn't, you know, some someone failed to notice what was going on. Um, you know, it's one of these things in history classes, I always used to say, if you go through it, you can explain a, what, a lot of what happens in history by the fact that somebody got their feelings hurt. 
<laughs> that's, well, that's, that's a, that's that's a great they, theory of yeah. history. <laughs> they got their feelings hurt, and so they're you know, and so they go to war, or they do something yeah. else. Yeah, and um, that's often and again, if you look at something like uh, in the British case, the Cambridge Five, uh, you know, members of the British elite who became Soviet spies. Uh, part of it is, in one way or another, they all sort of got their feelings hurt, where they had a, they had a certain contempt for the uh, the society that they were serving. I mean, one of the things you find among the Cambridge Five and other cases, uh, at least a couple of the, com- of the of the prominent members are gay. All right, but what kind of a position did that give them? So that's something that within particularly the upper echelons of British society was at least tolerated. But it also was this, it meant you had to live this kind of secret life. Uh, and, and I think in some cases it would breed a kind of, of contempt for the society around you. And I mean, simultaneously, a contempt for the society that made you repress or hide who you actually were. And, but also contempt for that society that you could so easily fool. Yes, that makes sense. That makes sense. It seems to me that the the ego route. This is I, I love your theory of the the feelings being hurt theory of history. Yeah. It rings very true for That's, me. It, yeah. it seems to me that people who are led in through the ego route of feeling that they are unappreciated now the other side appreciates them. They're really. Uh, signing their own death warrant, though, because it would seem to me in hiring somebody like that, just as you alluded to in the be, when you first started talking about this, that as soon as, for instance, the KGB or the FSB or whoever was hiring them got what they wanted, they would be the first against the wall because they would know that that psychological type, as soon as they felt jilted by their new masters, would turn on them. Or if there was a successful revolution or coup in a society, for instance, that they would want power within that system. So it seems like they would be the first against the wall. I mean, there's one of the things that you tend to find or that I've certainly noticed about, and it's true for the KGB, it's true for the CIA, it's true for MI6, is that they use people. So if you're recruited as an asset, they're, they're only using you. And and if you cease to be useful to them, they'll just drop you. I suspect they would have a lot of contempt for people that they were able to sway as well. On some you know, level, like yes. We, yeah, like we got you to betray other people for us like you know we, we have total con- whatever we're saying to you, we have total contempt for you you're still a traitor yes, it's, it's one of the things that will be thrown against. back in your face if you complained about how if your feelings were hurt and you complained about it they go <laughs> well look you're a traitor yeah we all know that yeah uh and you only worked for us you know why because of of money or because you had some sort of ideological fixation which we use or just probably your own ego <laughs> so once you cease to be useful it's not even the matter that you would be put up against a wall and shot. You'd just be thrown to the wolves. Hmm. You would be left, you know, or I think the word, you would be left spinning in the wind. Uh, the money would be withdrawn. The support would be withdrawn. They would just, you would just sort of be cast in the fold. And it's one of the things that and many people means that you have to remain useful. You, you have to hmm. give them more information there will also there will almost always be this increasing pressure that you're not giving us enough information you have to find out more you have to do more but it's pretty oh, I had one guy described it to me he said you know using an asset is pretty much like you get a tube of toothpaste and you just keep squeezing it and squeezing it and squeezing it until it's all gone and then you throw it away 
Interesting. So this makes a lot of sense. The other thing I'm wondering about is the, so in Secret Agent 666, you talk about Crowley, you, you make the very convincing argument that Crowley was an asset his entire life for, for his own country. And I think it's probably very well known that he would certainly not be unique in that. I think it's fairly well known that the, the British government recruits people straight out of university yeah, that's to, to be lifelong. Yeah. And I think they still do that. Right. So, so with Crowley, then maybe there's, I, I can see all that. There's certainly the ego thing applying to Crowley, but, but he was working, he was not at least at that point necessarily, maybe there was a double agent thing going on later. I'm not, I don't know, but he, he was working in theory, patriotically for his own country so is that a bit of a different a bit of a different situation well that comes down to it's his form of ideology but there's also a certain degree of ego in that as well um i don't know alistair crowley is a kind of you know like most people is a sort of human rorschach test and people seem to look at him i never cease to be amazed of all the crap that he gets accused of <laughs> And, and I've been accused of constantly, you know, coming to his defense, not coming to his defense. It's just he's accused of things that he didn't do. Yes. Although he himself is partly to blame for that. So an example of it is that after he comes back from his stint of basically being a, a fake traitor, which is what he did during World War One. I mean, look, when you spend the whole war in a largely neutral country. So remember this, when other people were in the trenches which he wasn't too old to be, Crowley spent the whole of the First World War in the United States. Now, he's doing work there, as the British government acknowledges. They tell the Americans, yes, he's, he's there on official business for us. We're not going to tell you what that was, because you're not supposed to be partly spying on you. But you would assume that well, it's one of these things that people in in intelligence were aware of, but it's one of those things that can never be publicly acknowledged. You're never again, and this I think is one of the things that that tended to bug him for the rest of his life is that he had he had essentially, outwardly committed treason. You know, when you spend and not only do you spend the whole war in another country, that's just you know draft dodging, but he then explicitly writes anti-British propaganda for a German propaganda magazine. I mean, called the fatherland nonetheless. All right. So, so, so for those who are not, this is a pretty famous story about Crowley, but for those who are not aware of this, the, the, at least his explanation was that he was trying to write propaganda that was so ridiculous that it would discount the Germans. And so you feel that this exponent, this holds water, this checks out is what was actually happening. Well, it comes out of the question is why were the Germans that stupid? We can come back to that in a moment. It's an interesting question that, that comes up. Um, I mean, there's a, there's an extreme level of gullibility on that level. Yeah, see, it's a way of explaining. Yeah, this this stuff is just so over the top that only Germans would believe it. Nevertheless, that's you know, for instance, the British press was not understanding of this. So maybe one of the ways to look at this is that in December 1919, when he returns to England after a five-year absence, what do British authorities do to him? Nothing. In fact, they'd even given him a new passport to return home. So nothing happens to him at the official level. He is, you know, he is not touched at all. But 
the press, you know, still fresh from the jingoism of the war, is not aware of this, nor will they ever be aware of it. And so this is when you get John Bull and other papers. This is when you get, you know, his declaration, he's a man we'd like to hang. And then the label that will hang over him for the rest of his life, the wickedest man in the world. And I think in a perverse way, Crowley's ego sort of like that. I mean, it ensures his immortality. I mean, you, you can't buy that type of press. And, you know? and it pisses off the people he wanted to piss off. I mean, his part of his whole thing was thumbing his nose at society and seeing how how angry he could make people. So now he's basically got, you know, this, this, the editor of John Bull that he has uh, nothing but contempt for is now argued the wickedest man in the world. You know, that's, that's kind of cool until it sticks with you. And that, I think, you know, a decade down the road, when he comes back to England in the early 1930s and he's trying to redeem his reputation and fails to do so, that's where this thing just kind of sticks to you. You know, you're always going to be the wickedest man in the world. You're always going to be this kind of, of, of traitor, even though you're not. Right. What, one of the things that was really, really both shocking and fascinating to me from, from this period of history that you talk about in your book is, I mean, you, you make the fairly compelling case that Crowley, to some extent engineered the sinking of the Lusitania to draw America into the war, which is a hell of a, a hell of a claim. Right. And I'm wondering if you could talk about what, what your take on what happened there was, because if that's true, then, you know, it's essentially the, the whole of human history to some extent, like rotated on his, his one. I think you'd like you to know. see it that way. Sure. Yeah. So here's basically what happens. I mean, he comes over to the U S and the Lusitania and, you know, I love the fact that he, he shows up on Halloween 1914 because, and I, I don't think that could be planned because that all has to do with the, you know, the, the Cunard lines scheduling, but nevertheless, there it is. Uh, so the Lusitania will be sunk uh, by the U-20 off the coast of Ireland in uh, May of 1915. In what was really a, and it's a legal sinking and it was under the rules at the time. It was a legal sinking because uh, the Lusitania was being used to carry war supplies, which you shouldn't really do on a passenger liner. And the Admiralty was aware of, but nevertheless, they were stuffing the ship full of gun cotton and shells, everything that they could have to bring over. So the Germans could argue, as they later did, that, yes, we were justified in sinking the ship because it was carrying munitions, war supplies into a, a war zone. Uh, on the other hand, we drowned a lot of passengers doing it. And, you know, it, the, the PR was terrible. So the, you know, Germans reputation um, never was restored to what it was in, in the U S after that. And, so Crowley's basic explanation is that through making the acquaintance of a German-American publicist and writer by the name of George Sylvester Vierek, who was the editor of this magazine, The Fatherland, that Crowley was hired by Vierek to write anti-British propaganda for German propaganda. And that through his acquaintance with Vierek, 
He then also was at least a, a hanger-on or an observer in meetings of what uh, the German apparatus in the U.S. called the propaganda cabinet. And really, this was just a kind of ad hoc group of diplomatic officials, academics, publicists like Virek, who basically got together and decided how we're going to try to counter British and allied propaganda. Because remember, the United States in this period, through most of the war, is neutral. So the effort is to try to sway American public opinion one way or the other. Now, in that regard, the British had a huge advantage because they're dealing with their own language. And they're also, in many ways, trying to sway an American political upper class and establishment, which is already sympathetic to them. So, so the Germans have a kind of tough road because they just don't have the kind of cultural influence over what, let's face it, is the American ruling class that the British did. So one of the questions to me was why the Germans, Virak or otherwise, would have had anything to do with Crowley. So one argument is that, well, you know, when he came over, he's, you know, he's proclaiming himself an Irish nationalist. Well, he's not. He never had been. I, I can't find any he, evidence he ever spied in Ireland. Don't you say in the book that he was, uh, you know, also spying on Irish nationalists, and that was why he was in the Golden Dawn, if I'm remembering correctly? Early, well, the Golden Dawn had this, within the Golden Dawn, there was a, there was political activity. And the political activity, and that it was, it was this nest of people who were Jacobites. The people who believed, you know, that Queen Victoria and her whole huge German family were were the wrong people on the throne, and we need to restore the Stuarts. Which on the one level is a kind of, you know, fanciful, romantic, Celtic, you know, it's like, so there's sort of this Celtic fantasy that we're going to have, except for the fact that that links you to what? Well, it links you to the Fenians, you know, the IRA, who have real dynamite and actually blow things up with it. And then it also links you to buying guns in Germany to be used to foment a rebellion in Spain, where you'll put Don Carlos on the throne, who will then supposedly return the favor by helping you put the Stuarts back on the throne in England. So the whole thing is kind of this comic opera business, but it has real people with real guns with real intentions. So... You should probably, if again, if you were someone of the British government, be interested in what those people were up to. You would need to kind of pay attention to what was happening there. And it doesn't mean that there weren't, uh, there wasn't the real pursuit of occult knowledge within the Golden Dawn. Most of the people who were in it were probably there for that reason. But it, it goes to show that an, an organization, especially any organization that is selective and swears people to secrecy, can be used for more than one thing. That's absolutely true in my in my experience for and and for better or often worse. Yeah. Um, what, so that leads me to why I just want to ask this outright. You've kind of touched on it a bit with the Golden Dawn, but it, it, the question just has to be asked. And we could ask this about a lot of people, John D. obviously, but let me just ask it specifically about Crowley. To what extent do you think that Crowley's spiel, his whole magical system, etc., was 
just a co- and I don't want to say just, but was was essentially a cover for intelligence work and perhaps or, or uh, to some extent psychological operations research for British intelligence. Like, to, to what extent do you think that was going on? I mean, I don't, I don't want to let go as far, or I don't, you know, I don't want to go as far as saying it was all kind of a cover for intelligence work. But the question has to be asked. Well, in other words, it was an all an act. Yes. Okay, so he's he's pretending he's playing a series of roles. Uh, my guess would be that on certain days he probably felt it was that way. It's you know I I was just talking to somebody earlier today about you know the, the whole I think Crowley's statement is that fundamentally you don't worry about how magic works. You just go for the results. It's the results that matter. And I think that there's one statement, I don't think I can paraphrase it. He goes, you, you know, you shouldn't really, you know, you can do these things, but don't try to confuse them with actual reality. Don't try to rationalize yeah. it. It's it a really important statement he made. Or it doesn't work. And whether it's just all inside your head, I mean, I think at some point, he, you know, maybe this, this, this whole thing is just my imagination. Uh, or, or maybe it's something externally that happened to me. It's, it's like his, um, his channeling of the book of the law, right? So was, I don't know, was there really this I was, was there really some external entity who was talking to me or was this just my subconscious? But the answer to it is that it doesn't really matter because the book of the law is here. You know, how I got it is, immaterial to whether or not it it actually exists in that case my opinion on it would be is that i think for much of his life the crowley himself was was confused about what was going on and it's at some point early early on even in his cambridge years and i I think a couple attempts thereafter he has what we would call a kind of religious experience. I mean, he, he has this awakening and you can, you know, Joan of Arc had one, Muhammad had one, all kinds of, you, you find this phenomenon happening again and again and again. And it's basically that this, this force, this other world sort of reaches out and touches people and some sort of, they have this profound personal experience but the other thing about that experience is that you really can't communicate it very well. And, you know, I've talked to any number of people who you know, at least claim to have had mystical experiences. And the thing is, they, well, this thing, this thing happened to me. But, you know, if I try to explain it to you, it just sounds silly. I, I, I can't really tell you what would happen. It's an extremely powerful personalized experience and and i fully accept that that really happened to those people but i make no pretense of being able to explain to you exactly what it was they can't explain it to me Mm -hmm. so i think you know it reached out and touched him at various points in his life and then he spent the rest of his time sort of chasing that high but he almost never gets it I, I think of, you know, times when he was sort of bemoaned the fact that the secret chiefs, you know, seem to have abandoned me. You know, I, I keep doing all of these things. I'm performing all of these rituals. I'm doing all of this stuff. 
you know, not to mention all the masturbatory sex magic, which is taking place, but he never seemed to be in many cases getting the results that he wanted, but he, but he keeps trying it. And it's as if he sort of knows there's something there, but is still in many ways sort of clueless as to exactly how you you can't really control it. Which I also think sort of comes across when he gets frustrated, you know, like, you know, towards the end of his life. Pardon me. Shut the door here. Hold on. No problem. Pardon me. Towards towards the end of his life, when uh, Jack Parsons is writing to him from Pasadena, you know, talking about how he and L. Ron Hubbard are out trying to incarnate Babylon. And, you know, Crowe is not enthused about that. He basically thinks they're being idiots and they're doing mm-hmm. things, you know, they're doing stuff that they don't understand and they're basically just going to create problems by doing it. And it's almost in some ways that he would be shocked that people would actually do the things that he <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, that's um, funny. So, you know, to me, all of that is just more examples that Aleister Crowley, if nothing else, is a very complicated person, as all people are. And I think trying to figure out exactly what he believed would probably differ on the phase of the moon and the time of the day. And definitely the phase of his life, because yeah. you, you can certainly track that. If you, I mean, he left such one of the good things about Crowley is he left so much written material. So you can kind of track where he was by decade or by, by period. And, and, and he, I think towards the end of the, he, he stripped a lot of it down by the end of his life. I mean, he was still interested in the book of the law. He was interested in the I Ching, uh, but he kind of readily, he, he thought the idea that of humans contacting higher than human intelligences was, was really important but kind of beyond that he I, I think kind of readily admitted that he was at a bit of a loss as, as as to the rest but let's talk about Parsons because I think you wrote to us on email that you you've been thinking about Parsons and his 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 role in things and he's of course a you know a larger than life James Dean James Dean like figure and I'm I'm that you know people are much more hip to now than they used to be so I'm curious what your thoughts on on that are. Well, you got Jack Parsons, you know, who's both, uh, well, he's, you know, he's, he's got Hollywood leading man, good looks. Uh, also did that whole thing of, you know, basically still dying when he was young enough, not to, doing the, you know, not living to the point where you become something other than, uh, you know, we become an unattractive corpse. Um and, you know, he's, he's a pioneer of the American space program. There you go. Rocket scientist or it's always kind of difficult to define him. I mean, he's not really a rocket scientist. He's a self-taught chemist with an interest in rocketry, which still makes him a pioneer in, in American rocketry and the, and the space program. And, you know, he's, he's a magician and a follower of Aleister Crowley. Um, the other thing he gets is two security clearances revoked. Okay. And the second time revoked permanently. (laughs) So what happened a a few years back is that a a friend of mine and the friend of mine had some background in intelligence. We were sort of starting around talking and that, I don't know how somehow the subject went to, went to Parsons. And the question kind of came up, you know, just, this is this sort of, 
idea we were batting around is that, you know, could Parsons have been, you know, could the suspicions about him have been based upon something correct? You know, could he actually have been a Soviet agent? Well, let's let's look at certain things that would, that would come across. Uh, from that standpoint, one of the things you'd find is that uh, during World War II, he works on classified projects. He's, he's actually, you know, he's flying off and hobnobbing with army officers. Uh, you know, he eventually, even in the early 50s, goes off to Redstone Arsenal in, in Alabama, where the, the whole project is being started. Um, you know, he's the guy who comes up basically with solid fuel rocket boosters. Okay, that's going to be important. He's founded the Aerojet Corporation, which gets government contracts. So he has access to classified material, important classified material. He also, through his work at Caltech, has continual connection with other people who are working on classified projects. Here's a good example. Uh, towards the, you know, in the late forties, uh, when he sort of gets bought out of Aerojet, Parsons takes some of his money that he got and he rents another mansion in Pasadena and turns it into a kind of, a kind of a cult commune. So he's there regularly practicing ritual magic and he lets other people stay there. And some of them are, you know, artists, occultists, but also a number of people from Caltech. And one of them was Robert Cornock. Robert Cornog worked on the Manhattan Project. So he's, he's actually sort of commuting back and forth for a while to Los Alamos, working on the atomic bomb, and then coming back and staying at Parsons, you know, little, his sort of little boutique hotel he's running in, in Pasadena. And, and what exactly is Cornog working on in the Manhattan Project? Well, what the project he's working on is the trigger. The single most important, the, the one great, you know, the, the technical coup in the whole thing was the how to take plutonium and make it explode. And that, by the way, was the one thing that the Soviets were absolutely the most interested in. That's what they wanted to know about because they had come up against the same problem. Remember, they're working on a bomb, and the whole question is how do we take this and, and set it off? How do we set off the, the nuclear reaction? So Kornog is just one of those types of people. Kornog also had his whole sort of past flirtation with the Communist Party. So, you know, he's got this kind of ideological angle. And, you know, what else is going on at the Parsonage, as this place is called? Well, um, lots of sex, certain degree of drugs, um, you know, magical workings, which may often include things and people. Can you think of a better way to get someone to a compromising position? Well, to be fair, I mean, just because he would have been attractive to be recruited doesn't mean he was. And my, my understanding of yeah. um, from his biographies that that one of the issues with Parsons and why part of why his security clearance was revoked is that he'd gone to a Communist Party meeting mm -hmm. early in his in his youth, but had. I think almost immediately become disillusioned and I don't think even went back to a second meeting. And this would have been, you know, having lived in LA, having spoken actually to a lot of people who were, 
connected to or connected to people who are part of that science fiction writers group and having been around Pasadena a lot, I think, and just knowing Southern California, I think that it probably would have been hard to get away from, if you think of Hollywood at the time, that that was in the air and there were clearly people there who were communist agents and trying to recruit coming out of the thirties. But I, but in Carson's case, I, I, I just don't see the, I don't see the appeal. And I, I think the fact that he almost immediately had an allergic reaction to the communist party meeting, even though it still didn't serve him well, because it, it led to his security clearance later being revoked. I just don't, I don't see the, appeal although that said um part of what happened late i i it does seem possibly one of the reasons why he died is it seems that he was about to move to israel and work on their nuclear program so so that i think there's more historical substantiation for for that he was um you know looking for foreign support at that time he was well at the end of his life he was actually connected by a by something called american technion the Technion Corporation was an Israeli company that was essentially it was essentially the research and development project for the Israeli military. So it, it existed, it was chartered as, as a civilian corporation, but it did all of the work for the Israeli military. And so there was an American branch of that. Um, I think the guy in LA, you can't remember his first name, I think his last name was Rosenfeld who was a sort of recruiter for that. He's a sort of spotter for this type of thing. Now, one of the things interesting about the Technion Corporation in Israel is that a few years down the road in the late 50s, it was found to have been infiltrated by who? Okay, the KGB. Okay, that they had their... In so there was a kind of leaky ship in that regard, which doesn't mean, you know, that might have been coincidental... It might not have been. It's, let's put it this way, in going through the whole, I'm not absolutely convinced that Parsons ever knowingly functioned as a Soviet agent. But if I was a counterintelligence officer, I would, looking back on it, I would never have given him a security clearance. I understand completely why that they were taken away. Yeah. Uh, and it's just he, well, let's sort of go back to his early sort of flirtation with communism. Lots of people did. Nothing, nothing too unusual in that. I think, you know, he had a brief subscription to the Daily Worker. Okay, that in and of itself is no big deal. But the one group he attended that, that wasn't a communist party meeting, but there was a discussion group that was started at Caltech. And it was a discussion group that was, you know, we were going to talk about politics, other issues, you know, things other than just rocketry and, and chemistry. And the two people who were the organizers of this group, uh, both connected to Caltech, were a fellow by the name of Sidney Weinbaum. Uh, and the other was Frank Oppenheimer, who happened to be Robert Oppenheimer's mm -hmm. brother. Now, the thing about Weinbaum and Oppenheimer is that they were both recruited by the Communist Party, and they both engaged in espionage. But their basic job was as spotters, because they answered to a fellow in Los Angeles, a kind of 
higher figure in the California Communist Party named Isaac Folkoff. And Isaac Folkoff, in turn, answered to the intelligence officer in the Soviet consulate in San Francisco. So that's what Volkov's job was. I mean, well, okay. well, his, his day job was being an organizer for the Communist Party in California. His night job, so to speak, was a talent scout or finding people who could be, the term here is cultivated. And then working for him, his fellows at Caltech, looking for those people to be cultivated are Oppenheimer and Weinbaum. And the discussion group that even while I think for a time when, when Parsons was a part of it was eventually just sort of transformed into the Communist Party professional unit number 122. So that's what it was. It was a technique, you know, on one hand, it was a discussion group, which was actually a professional unit of the Communist Party. Both of the people who would put the thing together were spotters working for a larger talent scout, Folkov, who was in direct communication with, in this case, not really what we would think of as the KGB, but with the GRU. So this is one of these little things, Soviet intelligence, you know, is always every national intelligence apparatus is a house of many rooms. So just as in the US, you've got the CIA and you've got the NSA, which are two different things. The Soviets had um, the KGB, as we call it, under many different, you know, it keeps changing its names, but let's just call it that. And then you have the GRU, which is military intelligence. And so Soviet military intelligence is specifically interested in anything in terms of military application. And the thing that they were most interested in was what they called the XY line, which was military technological information. And that's eventually what would draw them into looking at the Manhattan Project and everything connected to this. And they were obsessed with it. I mean, any, anything that would get them for a very good reason, they were obsessed with it because they wanted to get their hands on that atom bomb just as much as the Americans and the British did and wanted to, didn't want to be too far behind. So I'd put it this way. If, if someone in this apparatus, if there wasn't an approach made to Parsons at some point, I mean, a pitch or what you call the bump, then these guys weren't doing their job. Hmm. Interesting. I would a hundred percent buy that. I think it's probably, incon I mean, Parsons was clearly moving in a soup within which a lot of other actors and bad actors were moving in. And I, th I think that's incontrovertible. And I think, um, but it was probably just a, a knowing the occult and knowing Southern California. I don't think it's changed that much. I think that, um, one thing that I really read from Parsons character outside of a kind of fiery impetuousness, however, is just a lot of naivete. And I, I don't think that after the affair with Hubbard and just the fact that he's, he's running around having sword fights with Hubbard and on drugs a lot, and then he really gets taken in by Hubbard and other people. I don't think that you, anyone can argue that Parsons was not naive and immature to, to say the least. And yeah, that he's I kind can of a see how kid. for sure he definitely is. And he's, he's, he's at a loss for a father figure. And so I, I think that, it clearly he would be easy to manipulate 
Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if things were going on around him that he wasn't fully aware of. I highly doubt that he would have been directly recruited, but I also have, uh, but you know, just knowing from my own experience also, I mean, for instance, if you just take the last 10 years in the occult counterculture, it has been, and I brought this up on the podcast many times before, um, just having a vantage point on this. It has been really obvious on the very, very, very outermost fringes that there are people working for Putin, right? Like just, just that have been recruited by Dugan from, from now, now, ironically, from the right wing instead of the left and I, I there are certain people you can point to but but the thing about the russians is that you can say you can say that by any counterculture and i think that they look for people who are disaffected who are dissidents within any culture that they can like you say perhaps make a pitch to but that said i don't think that that is blanket true about you know we may be talking about one or two or three people and they may be phenomenally dangerous but i don't think that being adjacent to that makes you complicit so for instance i've been on russia today right they they interviewed me about my john d book and the Anna of horus and all of that and i went to their studio when they were still allowed to broadcast in in uh on wilshire Bo wilshire boulevard in los angeles and it was basically they just rented an empty room of a skyscraper and they were or an office block and they were just filming all of this content and oliver stone's son uh, uh, interviewed me about the Aeon of Horus and, and, you know, from my perspective, perhaps naive, but I was like, Hey, you know, like somebody, I get a chance to promote my book. Great. You know, like, uh, but this was before the whole kind of rush or it was around the same time as the whole Russia gate thing. But, you know, somebody could clearly look at that and say like, Oh, well, well, Jason's obviously working for the Russians. Well, like I'm definitely not, nor would I respond to anything like that. I'm just like a writer trying to sell my book. You know what I mean? Well, you know, so, they didn't you know, so, you. uh, I mean, I've been in the same thing. I've done, Oh, they never paid me. Um, <laughs> they just I've done had a lot me in there for half an hour interviews and documentary films for something called the, the Russian cultural foundation, which is, private organization but closely connected to to the government i mean it's there um i remember having one very long interview um i did one in moscow i did another one in new york another one in san francisco and in all three of those cases it was very interesting to do the interview but i would say that as they went on it increasingly became a kind of interrogation interesting as you're being asked the same sort of you're being asked lots of questions in great detail, always a kind of, of effort to get you to go in, into further detail. And, and basically what they were doing, they were just picking my brain. But I think in some cases it was to figure out how much I knew about something. I mean, in, in part because they wanted to know what I knew, but then... I think in other cases to figure out whether I knew something that they knew. Mm. Um, and I've had, by the way, the same experience on uh, the British end. And um, I, I could give you an example of how that worked. Um, another book I wrote was another one of my unhealthy obsessions is this often called a British spy. Even he's not even really British. Sidney Riley. All right. There was this whole sort of British television series done about him back in the 1980s, and this sort of set off a little cottage industry of trying to figure out who Riley was. So um, 
what happened was that in the in the early 90s, I, I wrote an article about Riley's activities. It sort of paralleled Crowley's in New York during World War One. And all of this article effectively did was that it pretty much showed that the kind of standard version, the sort of existing narrative about Riley, if you actually began to look at public records or other things that you could find, wasn't true. I mean, this, he was not doing what it was that the standard biographer said he was doing. It wasn't any big deal. You know, you find those type. that's the type of thing we, you know, obnoxious historians do is to go around destroying people's illusions about things. But um, nevertheless, that thing sort of set off. I got contacted by a couple of people in Britain. And what that eventually led to is that I was given an exception to the British sort of embargo of all intelligence materials. So just, just like in this country, there's a sort of a, a uh, you know, Freedom of Information Act that at the same time completely excludes all intelligence-related material. Right. So just if anybody who's thinking they're going to write to the CIA and they're going to send you a file, they will not. Okay. That will not happen because there is there is a blanket exclusion for anything that is considered to be intelligence-related. So an important thing to keep in mind is that if an intelligence agency gives you access to information, they're only giving you the in access to the information they want to give you. And they're doing it for some reason that's useful to them. They are not doing it to be nice. Okay. That's interesting. That's I'm really curious about. I'm curious about just your, your your opinion as a professional historian. Also, I think it's it's always been very interesting to me who is allowed, what historians are allowed greater levels of access to, whether it's that or the the kind of the inner archives of you know whatever governmental power structure. And so, so to the point where it's kind of like clearly they're picked as a court historian. The yeah. obvious example would be Neil Ferguson. Right, you know, like working on what um, Henry Kissinger being allowed access to all of Henry Kissinger's materials, and you know, but his role is just to talk up how great the British Empire was and and be a a, a cheerleader for em- empire and capitalism and things like that. I'm very curious what your your ob- your professional observations of that phenomenon are. Well, you know, when when an historian suddenly gets access to archives and materials that nobody else has gotten access to, does that create jealousy? <laughs> You better believe it. Oh, I bet, yeah. And it it, it leads to the, um, I don't think necessarily spiteful conclusion. It would make one reasonably suspicious that they are getting this access because they're playing ball. In other words, they, they have been deemed to be suitable and useful. And that I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're being dishonest or they're not doing it because they're not interested in it. But to a certain extent, yes, they're being used, and I think they know they're being used. But that's the way these things work. Yeah. So to yeah, yeah I mean to go back to the, the little example I had, I did this thing about Riley. So eventually, I was given this exception. I was you know, I would go to London. I was you know I went to this little office that had nothing to do with MI6, but. There was an MI6 officer there, and here was Riley's file, or what they told me was Riley's file, part of it at least. 
and I was allowed to look through it. Literally, with a guy sitting across the table all day, twiddling his thumbs, watching me do this. I was never left alone with this file. And, you know, I, I copied everything down. And so the question, you know, which I wasn't going to ask at the time, was that, well, why, why are you doing this? Because I'd asked the same thing before, and I'd been, I'd been turned down repeatedly. And then suddenly, I write this article questioning certain aspects of things, and then I ask again, and they're like, oh, yeah, you can come here and do this. Mm -hmm. But there was a proviso which was attached to this, and the proviso was is that we will give you permission to see the file, but because you're using the file in any book or publication that comes out since, you give us pre-publication review of what you're writing. So we get to see your manuscript before mm -hmm. it's published. Well, that's the reason I was given access. Because they were very curious about what I might know. Ah. So clearly, I had already come up with enough information to sort of undermine the existing narrative. So the whole thing is, what does this guy know? What's his whole point? So uh, we'll, okay, we'll, that, we'll, the we'll, devil's bargain. That we'll makes bring sense. you in. Okay. We'll let you look at this stuff, but then you let, let us look at everything that you have. So they weren't being nice. They did it because I don't know. I, I, I made them curious about it. And I, I think in some ways in a couple of the, of the Russian interviews I did, it was the same sort of thing. I touched it. I, I'd sort of, and the thing is, is often you don't know what it is that set them off. Hmm. But somehow you drew their attention to you by something that you'd written and probably made them curious about what you were doing or what you find. It also provides them a good way of, you know, leading the hounds away from the fox. Because, yes, we're, we're going to let you see this information. And, of course, you're just taking your word for it, their word for it, that the information they're letting you see is the complete and accurate information. Which in a couple of cases, I've subsequently learned it was not. <laughs> when we look at occultists of the past and, and their overlaps with intelligence agencies, there is, of course, D, who's responsible for creating, to some extent, British intelligence. There's Crowley, who it seems like, to some extent, was useful throughout his entire life. And then there's Gurdjieff and Blavatsky and potentially Parsons, which I don't know too much about their involvement, although they, they definitely were. And one of the things that has, you know, like all of these people to some degree or another, well, let's just take D. Parsons and Crowley. I think it is very obvious that D. and Parsons were na very naive people who were manipulated mm -hmm. a lot with and, and did not come out with anything on the other end with crowley it's a bit more i mean you're the expert on the subject my, my take on crowley is it was a he he, he was not naive in, in what he was doing and he definitely had a longer lasting uh, relationship that he perhaps benefited from one of the things that i've heard i may have this may have been a point that you make in your book i can't remember is that one of the reasons that intelligence agencies like occult people or new age or spiritual people is that they have 
a cover story for moving around the world a lot, much like musicians where they're traveling and like they have their entourage and they're going and doing these wackadoodle spiritualist events all over the place, or they're going to, you know, a pilgrimage somewhere for some sacred knowledge. And, and that, that provides a useful cover for why they need, you know, to be moving around, why they need, you know, so many stamps in their passport. Um, and that maybe that's just a, like a very obvious answer why there's there's an overlap. Well, it also provides you a reason to be in a place that an ordinary tourist wouldn't be. So this is why if you look at people who make good sort of field recruits, missionaries, same sort of thing. Um, you know, archaeologists, someone who would have, you know, someone who has a reason to be off here in this remote area of the jungle going around asking questions. You know, in anyone placed in a position to to simply observe. I mean, one one of the things that someone in the field does is just to be there and 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 pay attention to what's going on around you. You know, all right, you're off in this remote area in in Central America, where really a lot of non-locals shouldn't be, should they? Who has any reason to be there? So you're there. And one of the things you're going to be looking for is what other sort of foreigners are acting there? You know, what other sort of person is showing up? Who else is around? How would you, what, what are they doing there? In the same way, the same question in terms of what you're doing there. All you have to do in many cases is simply to keep your eyes and ears open, listen to the local rumors, observe who just showed up, what sort of weird foreigner showed up in this town over there, who else is around doing things and, and answering questions. And, you know, the other it, it advantage in some ways um, that a, a uh, admitted occultist have is that they're perceived as being weird. Right? Okay. Mm -hmm. this, this is some, you know, in, in the view of most people, this is some sort of colorful weirdo and because they're a kind of colorful weirdo, well, they're not taken seriously. Okay, You might think of that as a disadvantage, but also keep in mind being not taken seriously, or that is underestimated by others around you. Well, really, if you're a spy, that's what you want. Yeah, it's like a hiding in plain sight. You make yourself so ridiculous and colorful that... You know, people just roll their eyes at you. Yeah. But you don't look like James Bond, you know? No, no, nobody looks like James Bond. I mean... Basically, in the spy world, you want to do one of two things. You either want to be inconspicuous and attract no attention whatsoever, or you want to be so, in many ways, over the top that it becomes this kind of, you know, it brings us back to the question you posed earlier, was everything Crowley did, you know, was it all just an act for intelligence? Uh, if I didn't answer that well before, no, I don't think it was that simple. You know, I, I think he was really trying to pursue greater knowledge and it was this you know it was this driving force and frustration through much of his life on the other hand you have to make ends meet and let's face it he wasn't very good making a living was he in fact he was horrible at it couldn't hang on to money okay <laughs> i think if you gave him any amount of money he would just blow it on something so and but that's one of the ways that the british intelligence could kind of control him I mean, one of the things to notice, this is a guy who in 1934 goes bankrupt and he remains a bankrupt for the rest of his life. But then ever notice the odd fact that he's he lives pretty comfortably, okay? Not luxuriously, but comfortably. 
never lacks for a roof over his head, never lacks apparently money for food, never lacks for being surrounded by people, most of whom, oddly enough, have intelligence connections because they're mostly there to manage him. So they, they, you know, they keep him on a string. Now they even see to it that he gets his little, you know, weekly package of heroin from, from the doctor. All of that stuff is being managed by somebody. He's not doing it. He has no sense of how to make money. Never did. Without them, quite simply, he would starve. And he doesn't. There's another, you know, in terms of Crowley, there was something that recently came across as somebody sent me is that in 1939, just before World War II breaks up, the British government did this survey. It was actually a census, but they didn't call it a census. But it was a survey of the British public, and it you know it just went through and you, you know it's lists where people live, their occupation, but then over sort of on the right side of the column, always in blue ink, is a notation about any kind of military experience that people had. Because I think this was being done in preparation for an expected war that was going to break out. So it was a way of sort of figuring out, okay, if a war breaks out, who could be, you know, who out there could be useful? Well, sure enough, Crowley shows up. I think in this, he lists his occupation as a psychoanalyst. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. I can't remember whether it's psychoanalyst or psychiatrist, but that's that's what they're calling <laughs> it in 1930. Is even better. <laughs> but then over in the in the in blue notations is emergency list NID. And NID stands for Naval Intelligence Division. Admiralty Intelligence. Same thing that since World War One, he's most odd. That's essentially who he's connected to is NID. But the emergency list was pretty much what it describes. It was a list, basically, as far as I've been able to determine, it was a list of former naval officers who could be called up for emergency service. Now, the key term here is is officer, which means that in every other case I've seen, to be on the emergency list, you had to have at some point have, have a naval commission, which as far as I can tell, he never did. Or did he? I mean, the, the thing about I mean, one thing about this is that it shows that on the eve of World War II in the late 1930s, he still carried on naval intelligence emergency list. So that's either on simply on account of work he'd done for them previously, or that at some point he actually was given some sort of you know naval reserve commission of some kind. Are, are people given officer commissions just for being intelligence? It could be, well, the emergency list could be any number of other things you could observe. But the mo- thing most commonly you see it connected with are people who could be useful for some sort of auxiliary or intelligence service. Okay. Uh, and then you turn around, What's the what happens as soon as the war breaks out? As I note in the book, he gets a message from Godfrey's office. From where? From the NID asking him to call a phone number ask him to contact them and now that explains why they would do it because he's on the list and they're just going through and here's this guy who could potentially be useful so we call him up 
And do they, they immediately, I mean, the most famous story about this is, of course, that he was forging horoscopes uh, in, in, that he was working for Ian Fleming forging horoscopes, forging horoscopes to give misinformation to Rudolf Hess, which apparently never came off. But is that what they had him working on right away or was something else going the on? The officer, okay, so he's given this, you know, Godfrey contacts him. So keep in mind, this is the, go back, this is the emergency list of the NID. So it's the Naval Intelligence Division. It's an intelligence agency that keeps a, a kind of reserve list of people who would be called up. They call him up, he's told, I think, to, to uh, contact a, a Captain Lang. Can't remember the guy's number. And, 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 he's, and it's a phone number to call. Um, interestingly enough, a friend of a friend in the UK. It's always good to have friends of friends. His hobby is is collecting uh, sort of British intelligence telephone numbers, <laughs> figuring out where they come from and, and what they were connected to. And that particular office headed by Lang dealt with prisoner interrogations. So Crowley's on the emergency list, war breaks out, Yes, they get in contact with him and tell him to contact the office that deals with prisoner interrogations. So, that we know. What year was this? This is 39. Wow, okay. I think October 1939, right after the war breaks out. And then what is Crowley later connected? What are are the sort of rumors connected to them? Well, there are two. One, that he was somehow involved in the interrogation. You know, either, either in sort of trying to bring Hess to there. But I, to me, I think that, that he was involved in Hess's interrogation. And then you've got this other sort of weird story about Crowley being in a place called Ham Common. And Ham Common, also known as Camp 020, was sort of the British version of Guantanamo during World War II. It was, a, it was a former sort of boys' reformatory on the outskirts of London. And it was turned into a high-security classified prison for certain captured Germans. In other words, it was a place where people were held that, you know, it, it's one of those places you don't want to go to, a prison that doesn't exist. Was, was this the black site in the middle of London? Yeah. Okay. A black, okay. A black yeah. Site. I read about this recently. Yeah. It was like literally like they were torturing people in the middle of London and nobody knew it was there. Uh, there were supposedly all kinds of things going on there. Um, it's a type of place that if you were there, you would be subjected to, you know, you were not even technically a prisoner of war and you would be in, interrogated by all sorts of methods. Um, there's a guy who was actually a, a British Nazi. The last name was Gaster. And I can't remember whether it was he was, I don't think, because he was British, he, he was incarcerated. But there were, there were Germans that he was in contact with who said that, yes, we were there. We saw Crowley there. He was involved in the interrogation of people at Ham Common. Now, you know, that's a story. But it's a story which is consistent with sort of of in many ways sort of Crowley's background and also his long-term connection to the NID. Um, you know what he was doing in that whole period is you know then you've got this other this this story that was picked up by by the Soviet embassy in London 
And that was that Crowley was being used, he was being used to sort of organize what they termed occult orgies. You know, these, these occult-themed parties, in, in, which were being used as a means to compromise and recruit people. That makes sense. Yeah, and that makes a certain yeah. amount of sense. So, uh, you know, Rudolph has complained that the British were dosing him with Mexican brain poison, <laughs> which apparently is a well, fancy word for mescaline. Which Crowley was a dealer of and and, and avid user of, yes. well, even and, starting and, and in the early 1910s. How many people yeah. in England were experts in mescaline? Yeah, him. Again. <laughs> so uh, very interesting when you begin to put those together my my suspicion okay and remember suspicions are not facts they are suspicions but that's also much what we have to go on is that whether or not crowley had anything to do with bringing hess to england which he might have he more likely had something to do with his interrogation in the same way that I don't see it at all inconsistent with Crowley's past history or his practical knowledge that he would have been employed in the same means, the black sided hand common. Interesting. So that, that brings up two thought that this is, I've never heard this. This is really both fascinating and extremely dark sided. Um, that makes me think of two things. One would be the most obvious explanation, which is that obviously the Nazis are immersed in, their own brand of occultism and perhaps they bring in Crowley as a consultant and expert on that. They, they can, he can play to their superstitions. Although I, I think that probably I would, you, you probably have a better, you have a better outlook on this than I do or more information, but my, my take on the whole Nazi occult thing is that it's probably a little bit history channel yeah. and a little bit blown out of proportion. Um, but of course it is there specifically with Hess uh, it is obviously a factor. But the other one, as you're saying this, that occurs to me, and perhaps you, you, this is what you're directly hitting at, is that they just have him there dosing people for interrogation and, and overseeing psychological uh, uh, torture or interrogation. Yeah, and also consider this is a guy who in the same survey described himself as a psychoanalyst. So, wow. you know, I, and that's not to say, but... So, you know, he seems to think that he has certain insights into the human psyche. He's always thought that he had certain insights into the human psyche. Uh, and he had been involved in drugging people. Okay. That wasn't anything that was new to him. You know, that was, you know, back in his World yeah. War I days, he'd invite people over for a curry dinner and dose it with mescaline and then sit around and take notes in terms of what the relative effects were. Yeah, I remember reading recently a, a hilarious exchange where he, he doses Huxley with mescaline for the first time. And, um, uh, it, when Huxley is beginning to come up, Huxley leans over and says, uh, Crowley, there's, is there a physician nearby just in case? And Crowley says, no, but there's a very good undertaker, <laughs> uh, which is very Crowley. But okay. So putting this in context. And so, so previously my, my question to you was to what extent was it a cover or was it psychological warfare research? And, and I think with Crowley, you know, we can take Crowley's brand of very, very English eccentric British occultism, which honestly probably plays a lot better with the British psyche than Americans or anyone else uh, and is very essentially of its time and of its class pretensions. Um, when you put that in context with later things like MK Ultra or 
you know, in terms of dosing people or like you said that, you know, using the use of, of or like the CIA very definitely used LSD and prostitutes to put people in compromising positions where they had material on them or they were able to, they volunteered information when they were in a compromised situation uh, just because they were so out of it. Um, but then one of the things that has always been an unanswered question for me with Crowley is how essentially what he's doing in Italy in the 20s with the Abbey of Thalema and that essentially this, this whole Thalema thing that he is prototyping just so obviously strikes me as a prototype of what of what the 60s were where you have the 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 drug culture you have the use of quote-unquote magic you know like the, the mass interest in magic astrology rock concerts rock concerts as magical rituals but i.e putting people in in susceptible patterns for brainwashing using rhythmic music and drugs and that type of thing mass you know the creation of mass mass brainwashing events all of these things have long been of interest to intelligence agencies so there's a question for me where it perhaps is part of what we're seeing with crowley early prototyping of things that would later be used for population control by intelligence agencies, uh, the British or American, that then essentially get rolled out for mass production in the 60s. And I'm wondering if, if that you have thoughts on that. Simple answer to that, yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I don't think it, you know, I suspect that whatever it was that MK Ultra was up to was simply a, there were things that were being drawn from a long-established playbook because people have been, messing around that for years. And I think that probably goes back before the, the 20th century. And it, I think it ties in with what you can see is this fairly persistent intelligence related interest to, you know, everything from magic to remote viewing. Yeah. Which is just astral projection, isn't it? Right? It's the same sort of thing. We'll just call it remote viewing, and that way it doesn't sound so weird. And and they're they're persistent. I mean, the, the answer you'll get is in every one of these programs, you know, yeah, we experimented with this stuff, but you always it didn't work. Okay. We try and maybe it didn't, but on the other hand, if it did work, are you gonna say that? <laughs> okay. Yeah, we experimented with remote viewing and it worked. No, no, you would never say that. You would never, you, you couldn't possibly admit that it worked, not because it would make you sound stupid, but because it would tip off the success of a program because you don't want the, you don't want your opponents to know that it worked. You wanted to think it was a complete failure. Yeah. So that way, you know, when you're, when your spook spies are roaming around inside their high security areas, they, they won't notice that other than the fact that they're probably doing, that is they would deliberately lie about it, whether it worked or not. The, the answer can't be, can't be taken that way. And also, if they are saying that something worked, it's it's quite likely disinformation, which yes. presumably a lot of like UFO lore is clearly disinformation. Well, that's you know, <laughs> that that that's another of my uh, one of the things that for years I told myself I would just never go to because I I didn't want anything to do with you know UFOs. Sure. Okay. Because it was just yeah, you know, it was yeah. yeah. It's not a rabbit hole. It's a you know it's a you know cesspool. Okay, <laughs> but I was I was against all of my inclinations 
more recently drawn into that through an interest I developed in a, in a guy, anybody who's acquainted with sort of the golden age of UFOs will undoubtedly have heard of somebody by the name of George Hunt Williamson. Okay. Which is always with these guys. It turns out that's not even his real name, but nevertheless. And that was, again, one of these cases that I began to sort of look at Williamson and his weird, you know, this is a guy who's, you know, channeling aliens. He's not meeting them. Okay? He's not flying. He's, He's channeling them. That is, he's using time-honored shamanic occult methodology to communicate with what he believes are space intelligences. But he's just doing the same thing that, you know, how many pursuers of the occult have done for all the centuries prior. There's, there's nothing new about this stuff. But there's also, you know, it's, it's a, another topic for another time, maybe, but there are all sorts of things about him that his his sort of strange military career was one of those things. And as I began to look at this, as I perhaps want to do, there were certain things like, well, that, you know, that could be intelligence related or, you know, why exactly is, is he doing this or why is he there at that point in time? But I would have to say that uh, my general view of most stuff that tends to be connected to ufology is that it's bunk. It's either people just making up wild-ass stories for their own entertainment, or it's someone else doing things to them that uh, makes them think that these experiences are happening. I mean, that's one of the questions I have. You got something like, yeah, you know, I mean, some of these, the, the traditional stories is, is they're just, they're so silly on the yes. face of it. One, one of the things that I had heard that made the most sense to me and it's, is, is, is that a lot of the UFO stories coming out from the 60s onwards were, were literal disinformation meant to throw the Russians off the, the trail, muddy the water for, to, to confuse Russians about experimental planes being developed. Yeah, I, I, I think a very large proportion of that is you're trying to hide technological development because that, that's what your opponents are always after. Yeah, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and having been around military bases like at night, like 29 Palms in California, like you see some wacky stuff, but they're yes. obviously above military bases. So it's pretty clear what they are. But um, one of the things that, that, that I'm curious about, like I'm sure that you've, you've picked up on, like, like there's this such a huge media push all of a sudden where it seems like, you know, the government and NASA are now like on the always on the brink of divulging information about UFOs and now they're taking it seriously. And, and my, my basic stance is like, I don't trust anything the government says. So if they say there's no aliens, there probably are. But if they say there are aliens, there definitely aren't. You know, so, well, so. For, for what it's worth, and I'm not claiming it's worth that much, my general take on it is that, yes, I, I, okay, again, it's just, you know, it's, it's the same thing we said about occultism. If you look at the sort of ufology thing, what you're mostly looking at are just lies, fakery, and disinformation. That's what most of it is. But still, you'll always end up with these incidents that just don't seem to clearly fit any of those. So I don't want to sound like I'm just dismissing it as all just a pack of lies. No, I don't think you are. And but, I, I but wanted there, to ask you about that. There's something there. And, and I think that's what you get. Here, here's what my answer. This, this is what I think that the government, you know, 
the, the secret that they're hiding about UFOs or UAPs or whatever it is, and it's that when it comes down to those ones, they can't explain that they don't know what they are. They don't know what it is. And for people in positions of authority, especially, you know, if you're the Air Force and your job is to protect the nation's skies and security, the last thing you want to publicly admit is that, yeah, there are these things flying around here and we don't know what the hell they are. Yeah. We're completely clueless. Yeah. So, so in a way, I mean, that, that of course is, I, I think anyone who goes down these rabbit holes, you, you know, it definitely is, it begins to become clear that, you know, perhaps 0.1% of the smoke is not smoke, but is fire, but we have no idea what it is. And I think that it's, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's supernatural or extraterrestrial. It just means we don't know no. what it is. And I think that with, the occult, it's obviously similar. So, so you've been talking, and so I'm curious, you know, like looking at this from, it's so easy to become, I imagine, disillusioned looking at these things from the intelligence agency angle. But it seems to me like you, you are not totally dismissive of the, I mean, you're talking about kind of shamanic techniques and you clearly are versed in, in it to some extent. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on it as its own discipline outside of the obvious manipulation by, you know, like you said earlier, trickery or intelligence agency involvement or its psychological manipulation to some extent. Well, what your thoughts on it are otherwise. Yeah. The only thing I would go to is this is based largely upon personal experience, which I don't know how that interprets anywhere else. No, I don't think it's all bunk. I don't think that's okay. I mean, I think it's, the, the, the fundamental reality in, in so much of this stuff, and, and this this is more broadly one of the things that I sort of confront in, in history, is that people lie, and they lie all the time for all sorts of reasons, and very often that reason is that they simply lie out of some sort of egotistical satisfaction. That is, there's no practice. People just make shit up. All right. That's that's the simplest way to put it. And, and and they do it for some sort of personalized reason. And that's what you have. That's what you've got to keep in mind in everything. I mean, look, you can people confront that every day in advertising to the point that we don't even know. We, we just assume that advertisers are lying to us, mm -hmm. that this isn't real. And yet this, this stuff constantly surrounds us. So that's what you've always got to keep in mind, is that there's always a pretty good chance that you're being lied to in, in just about anything. So in that regard, I don't think intelligence or occultism or you know, UFO world is, is different than anything else. It's just that those, those, that degree of deception becomes more important if you, if you look at it there. But there's also this kind of it's a bit like I said earlier about disinformation. To make disinformation work, at least a portion of it has to be true. You, you embed the lie within this kind of matrix of truth. Because otherwise it wouldn't work. It would be too easy to reveal in that case. But the other thing it does is it, is it leaves, I think, most of us constantly in this realm where if the more you look at this stuff, it you don't know what's true and what isn't true. And, and you simply can't know. It, it becomes this, this range of, well, I don't know. I, I, I told my wife not too long ago that I was just going to stop believing in things. 
There you go. I wasn't going to believe in things anymore. I was just going to argue that there's a, everything is just a range of possibilities. And some of those possibilities are extremely likely. And some of those possibilities are extremely remote. But that's all you've got. They're just a range of possibilities. And I'm not by believing in it, that is, I'm going to invest myself in this and follow it blindly. Rather, I'm just going to accept that there's things that are more likely or they're or less likely. You're familiar with the Philip K. Dick quote that reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, does not go away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the thing, one of the real gifts of the, I agree with you completely. I think that's really the only sane way to approach, uh, particularly this material. But the one of the real gifts of going through that, you know, myself having been swimming around in these waters for a couple decades now, one of the real gifts of of waiting in that murk is it's like a is is it is like a Zen cone. It kind of because life is like that anyways, and uh, I think that even more practically speaking, you know, to have a lot of experience in this territory is, is great preparation for the, the quote unquote post-truth fake news era. Cause you, cause if you've been around this material, you have a lot more skills for handling, you know, things that are, may or may not be true or, or disinformation, which now everyone is drowning in. But I think if you've been involved in, in looking at conspiracies or intelligence agencies or magic or occult or UFOs or anything like that, you, you have pretty finely tuned. Hopefully you have pretty finely tuned skills in dealing. Can with I have a pretty good DS detector? Yeah. All right. And the, the, the basic question to ask yourself is that, you know, based upon, you know, the basic experience you've had, does that story make sense? I mean, does it just, how does it strike you? Yeah, and try to put aside whether or not you, the big problem here is whether you want it to be true and you don't want it to be true. And I think that's often the way that, that people think I might go, I really like this idea appeals to me. It, it, it appeals to the prejudices that I already have. Therefore, I'll more likely accept it as being true. So you just got to be aware that that's what you're likely to do. And you've got to kind of question is that am I accepting this story simply because it pleases, it, it, it fits with other things that I like? Or and am I rejecting it because somehow it's, it's an idea that sort of challenges other things that I, I believe? And just, you know, just give it the kind of BS test. Uh, and I think it's, so no, I mean, going back to something you said before, no, I'm not dismissive about any of these things. I consider that, you know, it's either a, a greater or a lesser range of, of possibilities. So give an example. Uh, what's the range of possibilities that intelligent life exists in the universe? Well, considering its scale, I'd say that's almost a certainty. All right. I, I don't have any doubt about that. Then the next question is, what's the possibility that uh, that intelligence life has uh, visited and interacted with Earth? Well, it's possible, but that's all I could really say. You know, I mean, given the scale and immensity of distances, that complicates things, but you can find a way to get around that. It's possible. Um, and then how does that directly relate to, uh, you know, flying saucers or, or, or those? Well, that's, you know, less of a possibility because there are other ways to explain that. 
And the most likely thing is that if it's happening on Earth, then probably humans are behind it. <laughs> yeah, so, there you go. definitely. One of the things that has also been a very helpful rudder for me is the William Burroughs thing of, you know, just always follow the money. It's like who, who profits, yes. who benefits. And, and and at the level of intelligence agencies, it's not money. It's it's just power, right? It's like follow, follow the, who, who's benefiting, who in power is benefiting from this and maintaining or extending power by doing this. Yeah. Uh, that's also very helpful. So maybe we should, uh, to wrap up, I want to, we've covered a lot of ground. I want to ask you this uh, for on behalf of the audience. Um, when you just knowing from personal experience, when, when you get start to uncover this aspect of history, let's call it, you know, which is, which is real and, and is un, unavoidable. Um, and you start swimming in this like murk of, uh, psyops, intelligence agencies, the occult wizards. Uh, oh my God. It, it's very easy to just stone cold freak and say, you know, and then the next thing you know, you're kind of in David Icke land where you're like, uh, there, you know, there's e this evil cabal of sorcerers are controlling everything, which is, we, we, and, and just freak about it. So what is the sane way to look at this stuff? Because it is true that there are intelligence agencies conducting psychological warfare on their own and foreign populations incontrovertibly. It is true that often some very shady characters have been involved in this. It is true that there is an occult aspect to it. And it's true that a lot of people who seemed to be innocuous are not and are wrapped up in this. So how do you look at that side of things like the dark side of the moon, if you will, how do you go to the dark side of the moon and look at it rationally as a historian and not end up all of a sudden off on in some QAnon forum or something like that? Well, what does it go back to the idea again of not believing it? Not, not assuming that you you have to, I don't know, it always seems to be that the people, if they're looking at history or anything else, are always looking for some kind of religion to follow. Really. Because that's just the way we are. Uh, something that you can, you can have complete faith in, uh, which you will then assume explains everything, and you go from there. So, you know, QAnon thinks that they've got an answer. You know, this, this explains everything that's going on. And in here, to me, is the thing about it, I think we'll touch upon, is that you can build, history is just a narrative. It's a story, you know. It's, it's You have very few facts to go on. You can say that various things happened, and then, and then we'll build a narrative to explain them. Well, it's an easy game to play that you can build different narratives. You can come up with different scripts to explain the facts. That's all you really have to do. So my caution would be is that don't invest yourself in belief. Don't take any of these things as the book of the law. Right? <laughs> because remember, where do they get growing? Including the book of the law. Including yeah. the book of the law. Don't take any. It, <laughs> it, it's there. Okay. Take it for what it is. But... Uh, you know, always keep in mind, you're probably going to come across some other narrative that makes probably as much or as little sense as this one does. So take it all in. Again, again it, it, approach things is the, is the idea that, you know, again, you're living in this world, you're just constantly dealing with the realm of prob probabilities. Okay. I mean, there, there's this whole question of probability as to whether or not any of us are going to be alive tomorrow. Right. Probably. 
odds are you will be, but for some number of people, they won't be. All kinds of things can 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 radically change. Now again, it's like life can your life can go on day after day after day in what appears to be a monotonous routine and it never changes until it does. And that change will often come unexpectedly and swiftly, and it will completely confuse you. You simply have to keep in mind that those those possibilities are there. And that's why I think that if you're coming at this stuff, you have to remain aware of the possibilities, and you have to kind of embrace it, kind of play around them to a degree. And it's, um, you know, always asking yourself, does this make sense i mean does this story seem to hold together what other interests might someone have you know the idea of following the money yeah um uh as much as we like to think about it the world does not operate through philanthropy (laughs) even Mm -hmm. philanthropies aren't philanthropies (laughs) it's the old saying is that rich people give to charity to make themselves look good Mm mm-hmm to the public while still ripping all the rest of us off. Yes. Isn't it? And getting a tax break Yeah, and getting a tax and all a variety of things. So, uh, remain open-minded, but not credulous. Always, always, even when you're certain, always keep in mind the possibility that at some level you're probably being lied to. How can you how can you extract the usable truth from the bodyguard of lies? I like that. There's a who I forget who said it, but there's the the, the old truism. It's like if you can't spot the sucker in the room, it's probably you. Yes, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's thank you. I, I one thing that you know from my own experience that I wanted to point out as well is that one, one phenomenon I have noticed in myself and, and with other people is that it's also, it's all too easy to become a co-conspirator in your own disempowerment. And what I mean by that, it's easy to, and and you see conspiracy people do it all the time. It's so easy to get involved in this, to read this stuff. And then in your own mind, you turn it into a quixotic dragon that is more than what it is. And it's also, and then you make the the logic leap of these people are controlling the world and they have the power and I don't. Well, you you just disempower yourself. And, and I think that a conspiracy thinking in general, like if we look at people like you know, the, like you said, they're looking for a religion. I've I I agree. I began to think about conspiracy at that level, conspiracy thinking at that level a while ago. It's almost like a type of folk art, and. But it's also at its root, people looking for a reason to not feel powerful. It's a reason for for, for them to f- why they are disempowered, why things are not good. At least they have an explanation, which is the opposite of magical thinking, which is looking for reasons to be empowered. So I, I, I think it's all too easy to be reading this stuff and thinking about all oh, like, you know, th- these these people are controlling everything. Look how devious and evil uh, they are. Because, the psychological yeah, it, warfare. It's the cult of the victim. Which yes. In, yeah. in, infests modern culture. Everybody's a victim of something. We're all being. Yes, know. and and that that's extremely uh, disempowering. And you know, you could be reading these. You can be reading this stuff, looking for evidence of your victimology, when in fact you're victimizing yourself by just putting yourself within that narrative. 
I find. Yes. So just just keeping in mind that where that that not only can you fool be fooled, but that you probably are being fooled on a certain level is the only thing that can protect you from being totally fooled. <laughs> yes. Wise advice. Wise advice. <laughs> you know, or that's as good a narrative as any, right? Which one do you want to which one do you want to believe? Well that that's that that's now we're talking magical thinking. Absolutely. Well, I, well it, can, one of the things I used to do in, in since I've retired now in history classes was to say, okay, we've got this historical event. Well, it could be this, but then another interpretation is this, and then another interpretation is this. So which do you like? Okay, which which appeals to you the most? Well, that's the one you could accept. There you go. I'm not gonna tell you which one is true. Because they are yeah, true. Yeah. There's, there's also an excellent Zen cone. You know, it's like, yeah. who, who's the magician that makes the grass green? Well, yeah. where can people find out more about you and your books? And, and uh, well, let's see. Um, what I've been doing, I, re I retired in 2020, which was the, the, the year for that, apparently. Uh, so, what I've been doing since then, um, my books, uh, which include Secret Agent 666, the one about Crowley, which include Trust No One. One about Sidney Riley, which includes my most recent uh, Wall Street and the Russian Revolution. Um, those can all be found on Amazon. That's, That's probably the quickest way to do them, unless you have a bookstore, one of those rare things around. Uh, other stuff that I've been doing more recently is that anybody who is familiar with the great courses, or as it now calls itself, Wondrium, which put out all kinds of wonderful stuff and all a huge array of subjects. I have done some video and audio series for them. Uh, those are The Real History of Secret Societies, uh, Crimes of the Century, A Selective History of Infamy. Uh, one which will be coming out at the end of this year is Secrets of the Occult. I don't know what that's going to be about, um, which talks about many of the things that we've, we've talked about today. Uh, and I'm also featured in two Wondrium series, The Secrets of Espionage, uh, and the more recent one, True Crime, Decoding the Evidence. And I can be seen popping up on other things like episodes of History Channel's Unexplained. So great. that's that's pretty much what I've been doing. And I hope to do more of that as well. Definitely. Well, it was lovely to talk to you. I hope to speak to you again. Yes. Please let us know when The Secrets of the Occult comes out. Yeah. Maybe we can talk about that. Okay. That would be great. Thank you very much for being on the show. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Okay. It's been my pleasure. Take care. All right. Thank you very Bye -bye. much. Bye. Okay. I hope you really enjoyed that. Check out magic.me m-a-g-i-c-k dot m-e and definitely check out our free guided meditation that we have just uploaded at start.magic.me start.magic dot m-e absolutely free guided meditation to give you a taste of what this magic stuff is all about all right i will see you there and i will see you in the next episode <laughs>